Uh, and, and so this morning we continue in Song of Solomon, and, and we're in chapter 6 today. And as we talk about chapter 6, it becomes a continuation uh, of chapter 5. Uh, and so together, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, uh, and it would be on the screen uh, in Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Let's read it together. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Which way has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to this garden, to the beds of spices, to the pasture his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He pastures his flock among the lilies. You're as beautiful as Tirzah, my love, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. You're welcome to God's seed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your living word that has something to say to us. Uh, And and today we talk about what it says about intimacy, about conflict, uh, about times where our relationships uh, are so beautiful yet also so broken in many ways. So we thank you that we can learn from you. In your name we pray, amen. Like I said uh, just a second ago, that chapter 6 ends up being a continuation of chapter 5 of what we talked about last week. And I encourage you, uh, if you weren't here last week, to, to watch it or listen to it online because it ends up being kind of building off one another. Uh, and last week we talked about this idea of intimacy being uh, a rhythm, A rhythm that resembles kind of like a double-edged sword, isn't it? And we've all experienced this, that uh, that intimacy is yet so beautiful and so powerful and so wonderful that it can make you feel so great. At the same time, that level of intimacy can be dangerous. It can be risky, and it can cause pain. And in chapter 6, we get to a point where uh, we see that painful side of relationship between this man and this woman, and then they end up in reconciliation. And so how, how does the Song of Solomon chapter 6 unpack that is what we're going to look at this morning and what we read 1 through 4. Now, before we start, I want to tell you a story. Before I moved to West Seattle, uh, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty new to West Seattle, I live, I live and, and I'm not far. I didn't come from far away. I just lived uh, in Queen Anne. But I'll tell you what, if, if you've ever lived in Seattle and then moved to West Seattle, uh, it's very different, isn't it? And so I remember a few months ago moving to West Seattle thinking, okay, there's a few things I need to do right away. Uh, and, and there was a top three list. And the three list was this. First, uh, I have to know where the best coffee shop is. Uh, and I think I've got that covered. Second, I need to know where the best tacos are. And I've certainly got that covered. Uh, And thirdly is this. Thirdly, I need to know where the best donuts are. And a lot of us, I know that uh, you might have your own thoughts and opinions on that, but I think I know where my loyalty lies as well. But the last thing I need to look at was this, and it's going to sound a little bit high maintenance, is where I need to get my hair cut. Okay, and I know that sounds super high maintenance, but you know, as a guy or for myself at least, uh, I get my haircut every three weeks or so, and so I need it to be convenient. Uh, I need to be close, and I need to be good, right? 
Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, before I moved to West Seattle, there was only one person. His name was Brian. I love that man. He was the only one that would cut my hair for the last couple years. And so this was a big move. And so finally, after uh, going from one place to another, I found a local place right by my, right by my condo. Uh, and I remember going to her, and she cuts my hair. And I'm sitting there, she's cutting. Uh, and I remember thinking in my mind, no, that's not it. No, oh my God, no, no. And, and so I start to interrupt and, and kind of help her. I was that customer. I decided to help her on how I like my hair cut. And I would say, well, and I was, you know, I was kind of obnoxious, to be really honest. Uh, you know, at the bottom, I like it really short, and then I like to kind of taper it off. And then at the very top, I like it a little bit longer, and then I like it a little bit shorter on this side, just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. And I just saw the eyes of just annoyance in her eyes. Uh, and finally, when we were done, I thought, well, okay, this wasn't terrible. This isn't the best haircut I've ever had. And I was actually a little bit unhappy. And I think that she, when we're getting up, kind of, kind of felt that as well. It was kind of awkward as I left. Well, so after a few weeks, I decided to actually go back. I decided to go back to that same place and actually set an appointment with that, zip, with that very same uh, haircut person. And a lot of people, and you might ask, well, well why, why would you do that? Why would you go back to a place that you actually didn't have a good experience with, where there was a sense of conflict, if you will. Uh, and I remember the response that I was thinking. The reason why I went back is because a few days before that, I read this article. I read this article where this uh, man uh, who was working in this big company, uh, and he was fairly new to the company, and he made this huge mistake, a mistake that cost the company actually $50,000. And this man thought he was going to be fired. He was packing his bags, and he went up to his boss and said, here's my mistake. I'm so sorry. You know, I know it costs $50,000. I know I'm fired. I'll just walk away. And the boss re responds with, well, why, why, would I, why would I fire you? That was an expensive training lesson. I just paid $50,000 so you'd be a better employee. You're not fired. And so I read that article right before, and I, in a very smaller scale, it wasn't $50,000 worth, uh, I, I go back and with that same mindset. Well, although my first experience with her wasn't positive, it wasn't great, there was still this sense of learning of what I like, of what she likes, and she likes to talk while she cuts hair. I've learned that. So I've learned to ask questions. I've learned to engage with her. Now she knows how to cut my hair and what I appreciate. And that couldn't have happened if I immediately said, all right, well, I didn't like that haircut, so see you later. I came back because now we went through that conflict, that confrontation, that experience. Well, now, guess what? I still see her. I sit down. I don't even have to say a word. She knows exactly what to do. She'll say, hey, Prentice. She knows me by my first name. The usual, Yes. And we go on. And I know that this is a very simple and silly example of conflict, but I really do feel like a lot of us, when we experience conflict in our relationships, the first thing that we do is say, all right, see you later, I'm out. Whether that's to the extreme of divorce, whether that's just extreme of shutting down, whether that's cutting off a friendship, whether that's cutting off a family member, I don't know what it is, but it's easier for us to say, 
I didn't like that experience. You hurt my feelings. See you later. When in fact, and I know that's hard for us to believe this, conflict, and we've all experienced conflict before, conflict can be a gift. I know it doesn't feel that way, but conflict can be a gift because conflict can be, and I'll talk about can, conflict can be a laboratory of some sort, a laboratory of deeper in more intimate relationships. Conflict can be a laboratory of deeper relationships with one another. And so again, in, in uh, chapter 6, it's a continuation, like I said, of chapter 5, where if we think back in chapter 5, they were missing each other, right? If you were here or if you know the, know the text, in chapter 5, the, the lovers, the man and the woman, they're missing each other. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I can't find you. Oh, I want you. Well, you can't have me. There's this back and forth, back and forth. And then in chapter 6, it kind of picks up from there uh, where, where she said, or her friend says to the woman who lost her lover in verse 1 says, where has your beloved gone? Where is, girl, where's your, where's your man at? Is basically what the friends are saying. Oh, oh fairest of young women. And, and the friends say, which way has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? We'll help you find him. I know that your lover guy is, is lost. He's run away. But, but my friend, I will help you look for him. So there's still this distance between the two. Uh, and then right in, in verse 2, suddenly it says, My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to pasture his flocks in the gardens, and to gather lilies. And then it says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now the meaning of this, uh, the verse 2 and 3 that I just read, is kind of split right down the middle between a lot of credible scholars. Uh, half of the scholars would say, well, this is euphemism, for sexuality. My beloved has gone down to his garden, for the word garden, spices, uh, lilies are all euphemisms in other texts for sexuality, for physical intimacy. And, and so here, uh, some, some scholars will say, well, now they're being physically intimate. Remember, this is poetry, and, and now they're geared towards physical intimacy. And, and then the other half of scholars would say, well, there wasn't physical intimacy. There were literally, he was literally at a garden, and she found him there. Now, whatever the point is, and, and I would say I would agree from other texts and the language and all that, for the former, that there was some kind of sexual intimacy uh, of reconnection, of rebonding. But, but whether I'm right or wrong, the point is the same. The point is that there was a, a sense of reconciliation that even at the end of chapter 5, they were missing each other with so much conflict, with so much anger and insecurities and fear, that all of a sudden, in one verse... They became reconciled together, reunited once again. And, and I don't know about you, but the first question that I ask myself is, what just happened? And I'm thinking, what just, suddenly the conflict, anxieties, and fears, and insecurities have gone away, and everything is just rosy. Uh, side note, I was typing this out, and, and my spell check said rosé. Uh, things are just, but same, same, right? All of a sudden, things are rosy, and I'm asking myself, what, what did I miss here between the two? And, and have you guys ever been to a movie, and you have to use a restroom, but you don't want to use a restroom because you're afraid you're going to miss something? 
but then you can't wait anymore. And so no matter what, you go to the bathroom, you come back to the movie, and all of a sudden it's like a completely different movie because you missed something that was so pivotal. And it almost kind of ruins the whole experience. I don't know about you, but that's what it feels like to me between one verse. They were angry, they were upset, they were separated, and all of a sudden they're physically intimate. They're reunited, uh, and the conflict has subsided. And we think it, it can't be that easy. Can it? it? It can't be that simple is what I'm thinking. I mean, think about your own close and intimate relationships, whether it's a spouse, husband, wife, family, friends. I mean, maybe it is with a spouse and there's conflict, this ongoing conflict, or, or maybe it's acute, uh, a recent argument that you just had with a spouse. Or again, maybe it's something chronic, an issue that comes up over and over and over again. Maybe it's with a family member where there's so much pain uh, that, that forgiveness looks so oblique and so impossible and so far away. Or maybe it's with friends where the conflict has been going on and on, uh, that it's been going on for so long that you forgot what about the conflict is about, you just know it'd be too awkward to go back. Have you ever been in one of those conflicts? Whatever it is, I look at this, and I know a lot of us sitting down, including myself, we've experienced conflict of brokenness in our relationships, particularly in our deepest intimate relationships. And it can't be that easy, like this couple. And we know that sometimes it takes days to reconcile. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it never happens, depending on the severity of the conflict. So again, what in the world happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6? You know, unfortunately, we'll never know. We don't know actually what the truth is and what happened that brought these two uh, back together. But as we look forward and we read the rest of chapter 6, and even throughout, we can see some of their personalities and how they describe one another. And, and I'll chalk it up to uh, their conflict management styles. And so this morning, there's some practical things that we can look at and to glean from as we live even our lives today. And there's three things we're going to talk about. The first is this, is in your notes, I call it the first shot. I try to be creative. Uh, but the whole idea is that oftentimes when it comes to reconciliation, what is required and what is really important is making that first move. Making that first move. We can see in these chapter, chapter six and, or end of chapter five, she's actively pursuing reconciliation. After all the back and forth, back and forth, I can just imagine the woman saying, enough is enough. I'm actually going to go look for my lover. I'm going to get out of my place and I'm going to go into the city. Oftentimes it says into the, into the city and I'm going to look for my lover because it's who I love and the one who loves me, my beloved, is mine. And sometimes in our relationships, in conflict, we have a hard time being the initiator of reconciliation. For whatever reason, we have a difficult time of being the first mover when it comes to 
reconciliation and conflict. And this woman sets the example of saying, enough is enough. And so what we see is by her pursuing her lover for reconciliation, by wanting to resolve the conflict, uh, by, by being the first one, it was absolutely countercultural. See, in this very patriarchal world in the ancient Near East, they understand that the, the women were oftentimes, especially in this kingship and concubine, especially in that dynamic, that the women would be more subject rather than equal. And so anytime there was conflict or confrontation between a man and a woman during this time, it would be up to the man to pursue reconciliation if he wanted that at all. And so the very fact that this woman gets up and says, you know what, I'm not going to wait for him to pursue me, whether he does it or not, I'm going to get up and I'm going to be the first one to pursue reconciliation. This was different. This was counterintuitive. This was countercultural during this time. And see, in a very similar way, not necessarily in that patriarchal way, we live in a very similar world with that similar influence. See, we live in a world that when it comes to conflict, instead of seeking reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace, uh, we choose the, the opposite of that. We choose this tick-for-tack model. We choose this one-for-one. One. This mentality of if someone hurls an insult at you, then what do you do? Well, obviously, you hurl an insult back. If someone hurts you, then what do we do? Well, obviously, the first inclination is we want to hurt back to, to some degree, in some way, whether it's words, whether it's even beyond that. If somebody does you wrong, we want to return the favor. The society, this culture, this world tells us that vindication is important. Tick for tack, one for one is what we should do. This is what our world says, and it's absolutely poisonous to our relationships. It destroys intimacy. It destroys love between two people, between groups of people even. And when we perpetuate this tick for tack, one for one, we become further and further and further away from reconciliation. See, if reconciliation, what reconciliation means is bringing back together what once was. It's bringing back together what once was. Now, if there was once a beautiful, loving relationship, marriage, dating, friendship, family, whatever it is, there ends up being conflict as every deep relationship does. And it goes further and further and further away. And reconciliation is bringing that back together. Now, when we perpetuate it with this tick for tack, with this pride, with this ego, it just gets further and further and further and further and further away, making reconciliation even more difficult and even more impossible in our lives. Now, if Song of Solomon is a bigger reflection, again, Song of Solomon is actually a bigger reflection uh, of Christ and the church. When we read Song of Solomon, yes, there's, a, there's a, something we can learn about intimacy, about relationships, uh, but another, in a deeper way of reading Song of Solomon is a way that Christ interacts with his bride, which is us, the church. 
And Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us the importance of reconciliation and what Christ calls us to when it comes to conflict within, uh, reconciliation within conflict. And here's what 2 Corinthians, and I'll just read it for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, verse 16 through 19. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, view people, view conflict in a very countercultural way. And it continues on and says this, though we, though we were once regarded Christ in this way, we do, we, do, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me read that part again. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So we have been reconciled to God through Christ. The Jesus' work, his death and resurrection, has brought us back together. Jesus' pursuit on that cross made it possible for us to be reunited and connected with God. Therefore... Now we are in the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are called to be people, to be the first movers. We are the ones to let go and and relinquish our pride, our ego, and to say, I want to reconcile. To pursue the one that has possibly even hurt you. And we see that modeled through Jesus. And for some of us, God is calling us to initiate this today, to be the first mover in this conflict today. Don't wait. And I love in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And that's good practical advice. Move now. Don't wait. God calls us to be the initiator. Now, the second point is the exchange. What do we do in this conflict? Yes, I'm going to initiate. I'm going to be the first mover of reconciliation. Well, what happened there? What does it look like to take the first shot of reconciliation? And I would say, and I would say this all the time, is that to pursue reconciliation, it's important that reconciliation is driven by our curiosity. Reconciliation needs to be driven by our curiosity. Oftentimes, we do the very opposite, and the opposite of curiosity is actually judgment. See, when we say, all right, I'm going to go into that conflict for the, for the sake of reconciliation, uh, sometimes we go in with the judgment. Well, here's where you were wrong. Oh, well, hey, here's where you've messed up. Well, here's where you've hurt me, but you know what? I'm willing to look past it. Instead of judgment, what if it looked different? What if we went into the conflict with the person we have conflict with with a sense of curiosity, the sense of this desire to know the other person, to, to the desire to know the other person's story, the desire to know where the person's coming from, the perspective, because maybe that will change something within us. 
Maybe that curiosity will, will shift our emotions, our feelings towards that other person. In chapter 6, verse 3, it says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Uh, the root word here is lover. Other translation will say, uh, I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. Uh, and this word love is the root word. Now, in the English, we have one word for love, right? And so that's why we love ice cream. We love cake. We love our mothers. We love our spouses. I mean, it's just ironic to me that the same love of, of, of donuts is the same love that we have uh, for our family. Uh, and in Hebrew, it's, and maybe that's actually true because I do love donuts, but in, in Hebrew, it's a little different. In Hebrew, there's three different ways to describe love. There's, what, there's raya, ahava, and dod. So raya is this idea of friendship. It's a love with friendship. Ahava is this love that we have with family. And then lastly, there's dod. Dod is the love that we have with our spouse, our lover. And you have to understand the point of dod is not necessarily sexuality. Although sex becomes an expression of dod, but dod is this intimacy, this deep connection of truly, truly, truly knowing one another, the other. It goes beyond raya, it goes beyond ahava, and it goes to dot. Now I know you in an intimate way. Again, not always sexual. And so how do we get to know people, know others, know our loved ones, our spouses, our family? What's the best way to know? And again, I would argue it'd be with a genuine curiosity by asking questions by seeking empathy, by listening rather than talking, which is very challenging, at least for myself, by, again, relinquishing our defense mechanism to truly wanting to know Dode in this deep and intimate way because when it comes to conflict, and I really believe this, and I think it's so beautiful that if everybody knew everybody's story we wouldn't be able to help but to love them. If everybody took the time, and just hypothetically, if I was able to know the story of every single person, I wouldn't be able to do nothing else but to love them. Reconciliation is driven by curiosity. Curiosity builds trust and safety and opens the door for dialogue. So as we initiate reconciliation in the midst of conflict, may we go in not with an attitude of judgment, not with an attitude of bitterness and resentment, but an attitude of curiosity. I want to know you. I want to know, legitimately know why you did that action, not why did you do that action. It's what's happening? What's a deeper story? And I promise you, that will change everything. And thirdly, when it comes to, and lastly, when it comes to conflict and reconciliation, there's rules. I call these boundaries. Because the pursuit of reconciliation will always require having boundaries. In chapter 6, verse 4, the very next verse, the man says to the woman, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling. 
as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners, this is the NIV. Now, what we have to understand is Tirzah uh, was, the, was the capital city of the northern kingdom. Now, you know, back then there was two kingdoms, and Tirzah was the capital of the northern kingdom, and there was a the southern kingdom. Uh, and Tirzah, the capital city, was literally, the definition was, she is pleasing. Tirzah literally means she is pleasing. And so the capital city of the northern kingdom, Tirzah, she is pleasing. Now, what's more and what's really important about this idea of Tirzah and Jerusalem, because it says you're beautiful as Tirzah and Jerusalem, is that as two capital cities, they would have been very fortified cities, well-guarded, well-protected, and a wall. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Jerusalem, but if you go to Jerusalem, even to this day, there's a big wall around Jerusalem. The old city is what they would call it. And so this comparison denotes this very similar characteristic to the woman. He knew, especially in this context, in this time, he knew that he couldn't have her at his will. Which, again, when it comes to king and concubine, the king could just snap his finger and say, come into my chambers, and she would have no choice. Here, the dynamic is very different. We see all throughout chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, uh, all the way to the end, that there's invitation. And, and here, this man is saying, you are like Tirzah. You are well guarded, meaning I can't just have you anytime I want. There's boundaries. There's a wall. There's protection around you. And you get to be the one that decides if I get to come in or not. And, and so one scholar describes the comparison from Jerusalem and Tirzah like this. Jerusalem, he's saying he's, she's awe-inspiring. Tirzah is saying she's, in, she's inaccessible. But she's awe-inspiring and inaccessible. See, in conflict, we must have curiosity, empathy, compassion, generosity. But empathy isn't empathy. Compassion isn't compassion. Generosity isn't generosity without borders and boundaries. And one author says, uh, one sociologist says that boundaries is simply this. Boundaries is simply saying what is okay and what is not okay. That's it. That's what boundaries are. What is okay and what is not okay. And let me just give you three quick observations about boundaries. A, boundaries are very different from barriers. Boundaries are very different from barriers. The purpose of the former is to create intimacy. The purpose of the latter is to actually destroy it. Boundaries leave space for restoration. And barriers actually perpetuate division. But boundaries are very different from barriers. Uh, B, uh, this sounds counterintuitive, but setting boundaries is a very loving and kind thing to do. Because when we allow anything, everything to go, we build resentment towards the other person. So having those ground rules is actually a very loving thing to do. I remember a couple years ago, I went to a conference in Spokane. You know, it was about four and a half, five hour drive. And I went with my uh, former colleague. And we get into a car. And, and I don't know what your style is when you're driving a long distance with friends or family. Uh, but I like at least several minutes at a time or even an hour or so of just silence. 
of just maybe even music, right? And I get really uh, anxious or I get kind of frustrated or annoyed when the passengers wants to talk to me and talk to me the, the entire drive. And so the colleague that I went with was very social and very talkative. And I remember getting in the car and, and we would talk and, and I was hoping for a sense of just my alone driving time. And I would even turn up the radio, you know, just to kind of give him a hint. Like, all right, all right, man. Cool, cool, cool story. Uh, let me just turn it up here. I'm just driving. And, and it would be silent for maybe a, couple, maybe a couple minutes. And then he would have the audacity to reach out and turn down the music and start talking again. A, you never mess with the driver's music. I'm the one that controls it. And B, there was a reason why I did it, because I wanted some peace and quiet. Now, I could have set that boundary. I could have said something, but I, but I didn't. And I remember when we got to the conference, I was like, oh, man, I've got to be stuck with this guy for three days? I mean, immediately I felt this resentment. I remember there was a Q&A at the session. He raises his hand, and immediately I think, oh, here he goes talking again. That's all he does. He just likes to talk. Talk, talk, talk. I had so much resentment in me. And then on the way back, I said, hey, man, look, you know, it's a four and a half hour drive back, and I love talking with you, and this is a great time for us to get to know each other. Can we have like 30 minutes, a couple 30-minute times where we just chill, where we just listen to music, and we just drive? And he was like, oh, yeah, totally. And it was no big deal, and it didn't hurt his feelings, I, I hope. And we did it. There was times where we talked. There was times where we didn't talk. There was times where we talked. There was times where we just listened to music. And by the time we hugged it out, and I said, man, that was an awesome trip. Thank you. So you present, see, boundaries, when we say what can go and what doesn't, that's actually a very kind and loving thing to do. And see, boundaries require truth-telling. Like, for me, I have to tell the truth. I actually like silence. It was kind of uncomfortable. I didn't want to offend him. I didn't want him to feel bad. But it was actually going to be for the protection of our friendship, of our trip. It was uncomfortable. But I had to tell the truth. When I got my hair cut, I had to tell the truth. Actually, that's not the way I liked it. But now it's better. And now we know each other. See, when we offer truth, we also offer dignity. When we offer truth, as difficult as it is, as challenging as it is, when we offer truth, we offer dignity to that person. You know, uh, a while back I saw this speaker who I love. Her name's Anne Lamott. Uh, and I love her writing. And there was a huge crowd to go see her. And after she was done, she, she took a Q&A uh, time where everyone got up and asked questions. I, and I remember, and I'll never forget this, this man comes up with this big book and goes up to the microphone and says, hi, Anne, thank you for your work. I have, I have a favor to ask you. This is in front of hundreds of people. Uh, this man says, I wrote this book. Would you mind reading it? And, and would you mind uh, giving me feedback on it? And if you'd like, maybe you can do something with it. I mean, it, it was the most inappropriate time and, and thing to do at that moment. And everybody knew it. And I'll never forget Anne Lamont's response. She said, no. She said, she said, actually, I will. She said, no. And she said, I, I don't want to lie to you. If I took the book, I wouldn't read it. And so, no, my answer is no, I will not take it. 
thank you. And they sat down. And I thought for a moment, wow, that was really rude. And then I thought, man, that was, that was, that was incredible. Like, Anne Lamont offered him so much dignity in his personhood to offer the truth, even as difficult as it was. Boundaries require truth-telling. And I'll never forget what she said. I'll never forget what she didn't say. She, she didn't say, I'm sorry. Now, I know we live in a culture where we need to apologize, and, and I'm not saying never apologize, but sometimes in our boundaries, it's what we have, what we own. And sometimes we don't have to apologize for it. Now, I know that when it comes to boundaries, it gets really sensitive because there's different types of boundaries. There's one boundary where uh, there's safety that's jeopardized physically, emotionally, mentally. And I would say immediately, yes, you need to create that boundary and find a safe spot and find support. And that's a separate conversation that we want to support you in if that's you. There's obvious and clear areas in our lives where we need to create boundaries and, and, and seek safety and support. And then there's other areas in our lives and other relationships where it's a little bit more subtle. Well, well is this... Am I creating a boundary because this is healthy and this is the loving, kind thing to do? Or, or is it a barrier? Am I shutting this person out? And sometimes those are very difficult things to understand and to discern. And so I would say this, on the other side of curiosity, because remember, reconciliation includes curiosity, there must be discernment. Paired together with curiosity must be paired with discernment. And how would say curiosity without discernment is dangerous. It could lead to manipulation, abuse, violation of boundaries. With curiosity must be discernment. To discern what is it that you need to own and carry and apologize for and to seek resolution and to seek reconciliation and really what's not for you to own. Because we can't own everything. It's not our responsibility, and it does the other person a dishonor. You does yourself a dishonor. And so in that discernment, what must you own? Because there are things we must own. But what are the things that are not for us to carry? See, when it comes to conflict, there's this thing that we call bifurcation point. And I really believe conflict is that, a bifurcation point, meaning the road is going straight and all of a sudden there's two directions that it splits off to. And when we go down that road in relationship of intimacy, we hit that bifurcation point. It can lead to deeper relationships. Unfortunately, it can lead to a brokenness and a further separation and even cut off. And I would say that when we get to that point of conflict, when we want to pursue reconciliation as followers of Christ, the one that we look to as an example of loving, of forgiveness, of reconciliation is the person of Jesus. Jesus pursued us. Jesus pursued us on that cross. And when God said, all right, there's this division, there's this conflict, if you will, a huge conflict and I'm going to pursue you because I love you through my son, Jesus. 
There was no prerequisites. There was no standards. God just says, I love you so much. I'm going to send my son to die for you on the cross, which then brought, again, what was once broken back together again. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up and invite you to a, a space of response and contemplation. And maybe it's a single person's name. Maybe it's the person around you. But who is it that reconciliation is a must? Where is there conflict in your life? And maybe the difficult part is to be the first mover. Because again, in our humanity, in our, in our ego, in our pride, we never want to be the first mover. As a matter of fact, we don't want to be the first mover oftentimes because we say something like, well, why should I be the first one? Why should I be the first one to say sorry? They're the ones that hurt me. Well, why should I be the one? Translation, uh, he started it. She started it. That's oftentimes the language that we use. No different from a fifth grader, a third grader, myself included. Why should I be the one? Because God did the same thing through the person of Jesus. Jesus was the first one to move. Or maybe right now you have a hard time understanding somebody that you're in conflict with. And sometimes we refuse to even understand because they're so far out and we're so right. But what if at this moment we're called to say, you know what, maybe that's not the case. Maybe I need to offer this person dode, this love that seeks to understand their story. But it's so difficult. It's so difficult. Maybe today, this morning, our hearts break down we have this longing to simply ask questions, to be curious and to simply know. Or maybe lastly, it's this idea of wrestling with boundaries. What is okay for me to own? What do I need to let go? Because sometimes that's what it requires. Without apology. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing as a form of response, I invite you to, to join the worship team and sing, or I invite you to just think of names or, or think of ways that God can break us down in order for us to be reconciled to the person we are in conflict with because at, at the very least, because we know that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus. And just on a side note, if you're here just curious about Jesus, and you're not sure Jesus is for you and you don't know what brought you here well hey thank you for taking a risk it's scary to come to a church especially if you don't align to the person of Jesus if that's you I want to talk to you I would love to connect with you I would love to have coffee with you I would love to know your story let's pray God thank you so much that you've brought us here to learn to grow and to be convicted so God, maybe that means you give us a name, a person, a group that we need to reconcile with. God, give us the strength to be the first one to move. Give us the strength to listen. That's the hard, it's easy to talk. 
but much more difficult to listen, the strength to listen and help us to own and take responsibility for the ways that we've hurt others.